a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Philip Johnson is regarded as one of the founding five and by that, I mean one of the chefs that was instrumental in changing the face of Brisbane dining. In fact, resetting the dining culture in Queensland. A colleague of mine said, with much admiration and respect, his success at his restaurant Echo, which he's owned and run for 25 years, permitted all the chefs that came after him to simplify and to cook in a less formal way, dispense with the frippery and the fuss. At 61, he's still a driven man who loves food and everything that it brings with it. A proper stalwart of the industry. I hope he's not offended by that. But for me, that means all the good things that it represents. Thank you in advance, Phil. The pleasure was all mine. So, Philip, great to have you on. Um, I'm pleased, actually, because you, you're, you're one of the, kind of the founding fathers and, as a friend of mine described it, I think the founding five of, like, Queensland cuisine. Whether that makes sense to you or not, I don't know. But he said this, and I thought it was really good. He referred to you as setting a new standard and giving permission uh, to the next generation, the next line of chefs to be less formal, dispense with fuss and frippery. And I thought that was really good. I like that. I like that when a when a young chef, it's almost like paying homage and saying, well, we couldn't do this unless you you paved, you know, forged the way forward. Would you agree? Yeah, I guess so. It's, I mean, it's quite humbling to hear that. But I look, we had a restaurant from 88 to 93 called Le Bronx, just to the two words, L-E, B, O, and X. And it was a French restaurant. We wanted to be the best and the best and the top of the heap. And to be fair, we're in the top, you know, two or three. But when we got out, we sort of got out of that business in 93 with um, uh, with nothing but a good reputation. And I sort of found out that's all you really had to get out with. And then we started Echo uh, in 95 and people just got a came. But we got into it for a different focus. Sort of back then we might have been spending, you know, a 1000 a month on laundry and we just said we've got to take that cost out. And, and we got into it from a different reason and then – you know, you be careful what you wish for because two years in we won Gourmet Traveller Restaurant of the Year. So we were looking at it more business-like, less formal, no tablecloths we'd been doing. I'd been back to England to work and, um, you know, even with the chefs and waiters sort of had butcher's aprons and we just kind of were doing serious food but we're just believing in what we did and I think we did, I guess, break down that barrier that it was a special occasion sort of event to go out, Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm old enough to remember too that going out was a special occasion. I mean, it's a case of putting on a suit and a tie and, you know, going out for an anniversary or a birthday. And dining changed at that point in Australia where, well, I think we wanted something different, didn't we? We wanted to eat differently. We wanted to socialise differently. And Brisbane was perhaps, you know, sometimes we're often, you know, a bit behind the other states, so they reckon, I'm obviously I've lived here, I'm a New Zealander, <laughs> but I've lived here since 1980, so I guess I'm an Australian. But... The change for Brisbane was probably Expo 88. So up until then, it was a really, we went out on Friday, Saturday nights. Expo 88 was open seven days a week and they had obviously a Russian restaurant, an Italian restaurant, a Chinese, all these different restaurants. So it became okay to go out on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so it, it sort of, that was sort of 88. It's worked through. But if you, if you snap forward to 95 when Echo opened, it had changed then where we could have been as busy on a Tuesday night as a Friday night. So that, 
was never the case, you know, previously. Why do you give the success to Expo 88? Why do you, do you think it was just because it made Brisbane feel like it was an international city and it was on the map and people were looking forward to something different? I think it was more, you know, if you if you, you could buy a, a six-month pass or something. So you could, you would go and try, try these different restaurants. Now, you couldn't all get in on a Friday or Saturday night, so it became okay to try them on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday because it was seven-day-a-week venue. So that... You know, people got used to going out midweek as opposed to sort of thinking we'll just wait for the weekend because, you know, in those days you almost, yeah. like pre-88, you'd almost die a natural death having a restaurant. You know, midweek was deadly quiet and then you you could get more people than you wanted on a Friday, Saturday. So, yeah, it was just a bit of a every city has to grow up and I think Brisbane grew up about then, you know. Yeah. I remember when I, I came to Australia in 91 and um, we were gearing up you know, our flights and everything were going into Brisbane. And um, a friend of mine, an Australian friend of mine said, my God, number one, it's got the worst summer weather in Australia, but he goes, the food scene is a disaster. He said, and that's at the same time when I think all the big resorts were opening, La Meridian, lots of jobs, right? La yep. Meridian, I think, um, Royal Pines Resort, all these places popping up. And I remember I we flew in and I remember walking around and going, I, I think I should go to Melbourne. And I, and I always say it with great, like warmth in my heart, but it was such a change from London. I thought it was just too much of a change. I remember seeing a guy walking around in a business shirt and a tie, shorts and long socks, black shoes, and I thought, I think Melbourne might be better for me at the moment. But then, of course, over the years, you know, it's just become a force unto itself. And even that period of time where people said, oh, it's a Melbourne-style cafe, even that's all gone now. And the identity of uh, Brisbane's food and what it represents is fabulous isn't it it's got some of the best dining in australia i think there was always pockets of good food but obviously population if you've got you know one one million one and a half million compared to three or four million there's a, there's a difference there but stephen downs who was a you know a food writer uh critic oh, what do you call it critical journalist for many years he had a you know wrote in the australian whatever and he wrote one i can't remember if it was if it was lebronx i think it was echo and he said that it was a breath of fresh air because he'd once he'd once said that you couldn't eat north of Paddington, and he was talking Paddington in Sydney. <laughs> so he said, "Echoes changed this, where it's that's actually okay to um to eat in Brisbane." So that was a you know that's a nice one. But yeah, um, although I remember Russell Armstrong at tables yep. at Tu Wong at uh, was it Miskin Street? I can't remember now. Yeah, it was it's a long Miskin time Street, ago, yeah. but no. you know that was one of the best meals I had in Australia in the that would have been in the early nineties for sure. Yeah, and around that time we had um, two small rooms, which was Andrew, Andrew Marosh. And there really was Russell, Andrew, myself, uh, David Pugh. There was a, David there was Pugh, a, I was going to say, and Gillian Hurst and yeah. uh, Louis. I'm trying to remember Louis. Farad. Farad, yeah, that's yeah. right. He had Farad's so, on um, Coronation Drive, yeah. Yeah, and that's why you were one of the founding five. That's the – they're the big – they're the, the well, big I'll tell guns. you a, a funny story that um, <laughs> when we – when we first opened Echo and then we sort of won that gourmet travel, like we were quite cheap at the time. Maybe entrees were 18 and, you know, mains were 24. And Simon Hill, who's a, a great restaurateur, he had um, Ortega, he's had um, Elto at the powerhouse and he had Isis. He said, you know, you bloody, you, you, you caused me to eat on the poverty line for about three or four years. Because when you won Gourmet Traveller, I was very conscious of not sort of trying to squeeze it, putting the prices up because we were – we could have put the prices up, and he said, "You basically held held me on a basic wage because you wouldn't move your prices, <laughs> and because you wouldn't move, you know, no one else could move." And that because like you've got to put it back. It's, it was a once in a lifetime experience in the in the fact that when we won that thing, we 
we were busy for, um, you, you know, the bookings were three weeks on it. You couldn't get a booking for three weeks on a Tuesday or three months on a Friday, Saturday. Now, there's a certain type you can handle it. You've got to tell your staff to, if you say that, it's, it comes across as arrogant. So you have to sort of try to educate your people to say, we can do a, you know, a late sitting and early sitting. Consequently, people thought we did two sittings, which we never did, but we were just trying to be, to fit people in rather than saying, you know, we're bulletproof and we're fully booked and we're fully booked. And because it, you know, lasted a year or so, but it's not going to, you're not going to last that long if you, if you stay arrogant like that. So where did it all start off? Because you, you worked overseas, you worked in London. I know you did a couple of. If we go sort of, I'll give you a quick flash. We go back to in New Zealand. I grew up in Oxford, just outside of Christchurch. And I grew up and my parents had motor garages and I, my mum was never that well. So I used to cook and, and people do things by appreciation. I used to cook for the family. But it was sort of a bit of a hobby. It was never that. How, how old then were you I, at this uh, at this point? Oh, I, I, I reckon mean, I was cooking, at, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine with my grandmother <laughs> and that and just sort of learnt to do it. But my main sort of um, passion was it still is sort of, you know, motor cars and aeroplanes and bits and bobs. I, I applied for apprenticeship as an aircraft mechanic for Air New Zealand, went and did the did the uh, the maths exam and I don't know where it went, but it, it obviously wasn't good. And um, <laughs> in those days, my mum just walked me into town and we just walked into the Clarendon. That was sort of a classic hotel where the Queen had stayed and that and said, my son wants to, you know, a job as a chef. And it, in those days, you got to remember, it's like the 70s. It was just, yep, no, but you start tomorrow, go in, first day, <laughs> slice the top of your finger off on a slicer and away I went. And I did my apprenticeship. I liked it. It was a job, but there wasn't really a passion, you know, there wasn't really that, sorry, there was a passion, but the, it was just, I had other things outside of it, which I still do. But then I came to Australia, worked around a bit in Perth, a bit in Sydney, a bit in Brisbane. And we had a friend who went off to London and one worked at the Dorchester, one worked for the Rue brothers. And they went, mate, you've got to get over here. This, this is chalk and cheese, you know? And so I did. And I ended up working for Anthony Warren Thompson at Menage a Trois. And at that time, um, I remember sitting on the step. I still remember this so clearly. I was sitting on the front steps waiting for the chef to turn up or something. And there was about 15 different lettuces, 20 different mushrooms, you know, 30 different unpasteurized cheeses turned up. And I thought, holy shit, I'm not going to be able to, you know, put a name to this or remember them all. At the time, we had a button mushroom and we had a flat mushroom in Australia. We had a cos lettuce and an iceberg. This was 15 types of lettuce. It was you know, a dozen types of mushrooms. It was, and I just thought, this is it. And then something changed where it was a, became a passion. Yeah. And Warrell Thompson at the time. So when was that? Was that early 90s or? That was. Um, no, no, mid 80s, wouldn't no. it? No. Yeah, I came back in 85. So it would have been 83 yeah. to 85. Yeah. yeah. And he was a game changer himself because he was a little, even though he was part of the establishment, and I think he was even part of the, what they called the, is it the Maillard d'Oeuvre de Grand Britannia? He won the the medal and yep. the, you know, the the sash and the medal and all that, which was a bit highfalutin, but it was all associated with being a top chef. But he he had that casual style too, didn't he? He changed things around. And he, he, and, and it wasn't he, classic and it was a, French. It was a little different. Well, Menage a Trois was entrees only, so he, his his sort of catch cry or his advertising was, um, it was starters and desserts, no intercourse. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was no main courses. But yeah. Lady Lady Di had eaten there and it was um, – Crazy. Yeah, it was a hot restaurant. It was a place to go. Can I drag your memory back a bit and see? Do, do you remember the first, you know, days in the kitchen or the a, a pivotal moment in the kitchen where you? I mean, it could be just a steaming stock pot and staring through it. I mean, it doesn't something that stayed with you. Do you think? Yeah, I guess I went in there and I and I just sort of 
I'd just come sort of fresh out of Australia and you're a little bit intimidated. But, you know, I remember filling all these little eggs. We used to empty these eggs out and everything, because it was menage a trois, meaning, you know, threesome or three of or whatever, um, we used to empty all these eggshells and then fill them. One would have smoked salmon, one would have scrambled eggs warm with caviar on top. One would have sort of a scudilia and something else on it. So there was everything was sort of, a lot of things were done in threes. Not everything, but a lot. And what happened was we went there and we were working these crazy hours, like, um, you know, double shifts and all you would have done. But what happened was there used to be a day shift and a, a night shift. So, the, you know, the, there'd be a day shift that did lunches and a night shift. And we worked four days on and three days off. So it was pretty good. You worked hard when you were there. But then they must have thought, jeepers, it's, it's not working with all these wages. So they said, we're going to go to five days and close Saturday, Sunday, which a lot of sort of top English rest, uh, London restaurants did at one stage. And we're going to have to get rid of half the staff. Well, there's myself and this girl I was with at the time called Kathy. She was also a chef. We both got a job there. We thought, well, we're, we were first on. Sorry, we were last on. We're going off, to be first yeah. off for sure. And they and they just said, no, you two are staying. So obviously I thought, shit, my work's <laughs> all right. And they got rid of a whole lot of other people. I guess in those days it wasn't that hard to get rid of people. And then we what we did is we worked Monday to Friday double shifts and we had Saturday, Sunday off. So you know, still today, a guy called David Wilby that w- was a chef at Menage Tai went on to run a place outside of London and he opened up something in New York for Warrell Thompson. I was still in touch with him. So, yeah, it was it was a good time Some of my life. Some fond memories and a, and a new, appreciation, new appreciation of lettuce and cheese. Yeah, and just and, and unpasteurised, unpasteurised cheese. Like, we, you know, they, we were told it was going to kill you in this side of the world. You know, it's not going to kill you. And and it's just the passion. You know, there was a guy that, t- there was a guy that came around on his push bike and he just had, you know, golden shallots or you know, on the in a bag from France on his handlebars, and he'd sell us stuff like that. And I thought, man, that's a true believer. If I've ever seen a true believer delivering onions on your push bike, because you have access to these these particular onions, and they're the best, you know. Yeah. So, how long did you spend there? Did you a few years or? That was sort of a couple of years. I did sort of two winters, and I thought I actually don't think I can do. What the glorious weather in London? You 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 turned your back on it. <laughs> After a couple of years, I still I love London. There's, you'll never knock it out of me. But yeah, it was tough. But I came back and I just had this focus. I held on to this focus that I'm going to open a restaurant. I'm going to open a restaurant. Three years on, I did manage to. Ha- my dad helped me loan some money. And we open, open the Bronx. I was just a true believer. You know, you just you do anything. You just you just wanted to to believe. And and you make a lot of mistakes and that, but. The expression, the way you know, in your own restaurant, the, that you're allowed to do what you want to do, and you, and when the public sort of trust you, you can do more. So it's a yeah, it was a. And what do you what do you remember a, um, from that in terms of? I mean, you know, if it's teaching anybody that's listening or offering them, you know, inspiration if they're listening. I mean, I certainly remember when we opened Phoenix. You know, there were moments where I mean, Ray re- said to me years later, he goes, I "Remember driving to work, sitting in the car park, I just couldn't get out of the car." You know, he goes, "I didn't even know how." I didn't even. He goes. I don't even yeah. know how I got there. He goes. I don't remember driving. You know. Well, look, I'm, you know, sixty-one now. But I like. Let's say I was twenty-eight at the time. So I was at. I can remember similar to what you're saying, is that I did a service and we only used to do about 58, 60 people. But it was like labour intensive. You used to try and make work for yourself. So I did this and I went out. I can remember sitting on um, a laundry bag, those green Elsco laundry bags, and collapsing and thinking. I don't know how many more services of those I've got in me. That was at 28. I'm still doing it. <laughs> well, you can get into the laundry bag. It's like a beanbag. You've got to get out. You've got to roll yourself <laughs> exactly. out. 
I remember um, cashing up. I know it's, it, this is about you, not me, but it just reminded me of it. Yeah. I remember cashing up, uh, you know, because we were doing everything, you know, and even though we had a lot of stuff, you know, we didn't trust anybody back then. And we, I was cashing up. It would have been about one thirty in the morning. And I just took the Westpac bags and stuck them in my car. And I thought I'll drop it off at North Richmond, uh, Westpac in the morning. And North Richmond's not the safest place, or it wasn't. And I remember walking across the street with these two bags of money. I got into the bank and they were just mortified. They said, you know, you can't, you know, walk across the street with bags of money. Uh, you know, n- Was that daytime? That was nine in the morning? Yeah, nine it? in the morning. And uh, they said, it's just too risky. And I said, mate, do you know how many hours I've worked for this? I said, you'll find two hands carved off with the ends of those Westpac bags in them, you know, because I still want, I'd just do anything to keep hold of it. But anyway, Absolutely. I changed. I yeah. parked next to the bank next time and I put it in a different bag and just dropped it in the thing. But anyway. So what what do you think looking back at LeBronx what do you what do you reckon having said that you left that business you know with not much more than reputation what what were your mistakes that you'd never repeated after that The one thing I'm proud of a goes is I never kind of wavered so if I'm going to use a molten sea salt or a good oil I just kind of I don't do it because for the hell of it or to get I just do it because I believe and if the flavor's there you know, you can you can bring me something and tell me it's organic and it's this and that, but if I put it in my mouth and it's not great, well, then I'm not there. <laughs> so I stuck to it, you know, whether we made money, and we did okay. Obviously, we, you know, bought our first house and bits and bobs. So like, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but it, it certainly wasn't, you know, rags to riches. And um, I think if you, you know, you've got to stick to what you believe. You can't go left. You can't go right. You've just got to have your own vision. And you and you sure you can listen to customers and you can listen to um, opinions, but you've got to make up your own mind. That was kind of the and I got out of there with no regrets, thinking, yeah, like um, it was like the training wheels. I learned a lot, you know, and and um, I guess we uh, wages weren't that bad in those days, so you weren't sort of leaking there. I guess you were sort of fighting against a little bit of high food costs then because you were trying to use the best. And when you, you kind of skirted around it a little bit there, but, you you know, when you're talking about customers saying the course, is it that you're reacting to what a customer is asking for and before you know it, you've gone from a four entrees to 20? Is that what you mean? Is that the kind of thing? You're changing dishes it, because? Yeah, I think it become sort of more than that, the confidence of, you know, like when we first, way back in sort of 88, when, when you put on, say, venison, people wouldn't trust you know, you until you could, if you were going to cook it medium rare, they'd think, oh, it's going to be something that's still alive and it's going to be scary. And But once they sort of see how you do it, they came back and say, I've tried something I never would have tried. And I, you know, and then you 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 could put on some pigeon and you could become a bit more adventurous. So within reason, we still have the the staples, but it, I found when the, when the public are on side with you and they, they love what you do, then it gives you a, you gives it, it gives you more freedom as well. So, Going on from the Bronx, so first days at uh... yeah. So then we went back. I went back to England. So the second time, and that time I worked again for Warren Thompson, a big place called Delugo, and it was in yeah. Frith Street, and they were there, and that was just massive. It was two hundred and fifty people, or two hundred for lunch, two fifty for dinner. And then I learned was a guy called Mark Emberton, and I sort of learned how to do comfy, you know, ducks to put fifty in a tray and do it all in one go in a big old garland <laughs> oven. And I thought, shit, this is what I want to do. This is kind of bistro food. We're taking it out. We're just putting it on a, a few beans with a bit of, you know, a handful of walnuts and a bit of wilted spinach, and this is what I want to cook. So I, I kind of worked there most of the – I've sort of worked there for about six months. Actually, before we um, left Brisbane – so we'd, I'd gone and worked for a couple of other people in between. 
we wanted to do another business. I thought, look, it wasn't that great, but I know there's more in me. So there was this classic old building, the original building, not the one we're in now, but the one we were in for 22 years on the corner mm. of Boundary and Adelaide Street, just a beautiful old building. It's, um, it was an old tea warehouse and it's a, it was an odd shape. When they did the kitchen, none of the bloody stainless steel fitted initially because it's it was like a triangular shape. And, of course, they just took the measurements and then didn't realise that the, the, the building was sort of on a triangle as opposed to, a, you know, a 90-degree angle. Anyway, we before we left Australia, a guy said to me, oh, a guy, a, guy, a graphics guy says, oh, you know, Rob Riddelli's a heritage architect. You know he bought that old building at Boundary Street. He's going to live on the top floor and he, he, he's kind of quirky. He'd probably kind of like a, a restaurant downstairs. So we went and saw him. He went, yeah. If you're back in six months, we'll do a restaurant. So that I was going to go back for a couple of years because my, my first wife was um, English. So we came back within six months and um, it wasn't quite ready. But we, by that stage, I'd sort of thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do sort of bistro food, but it's got to be full of flavour. It's got to be slightly less work for the chef. I don't want to kill me. And I wanted to make a, you know, like a pleasurable place where, People want to work. Chefs want to work. It's, you know, not, we're not going to do these yeah. crazy – we ended up doing crazy hours, but we're not going to be working all day killing ourselves. We need to simplify this thing. So that was the vision, and we kicked it off. And, again, it wasn't just this instant you know, turn on that you sometimes you get, you know, like people knew me, so they came to it, and they said, oh, this is a bit of a funny a – funny. actually, before we left Australia, Gillian Hurst and Russell Armstrong, they both come to me and they said, you know that I hear you looking at that site on Boundary Street. I hope you haven't signed anything because you're, you're going to bloody lose everything you've got. And I went, oh, that's, that's comforting. <laughs> they thought it wasn't a great position because it was on the edge of the city, not in the city, but not out of the city, which turned out to be a benefit because you could park there as much as it was tight and they didn't, people didn't have to come right into the city. So it, it turned out to be okay. So we started it off and it was just a different time, different place. You know, the rent was 49000 The landlord helped me fit it out, fitted the whole thing out for hundred and twenty grand. We wouldn't even get out of the toilets. Those toilets. were the days. Yeah, we wouldn't Philip. even get Those out of the, the doing the toilets for hundred and twenty <laughs> grand these days. Anyway, we did it and, and there was PJ who's got Harvey's now and there's me and a guy called Paul McGiven who's got La Lune and it was just three of us and we were just, we were just true believers. We got in there and we did this food. And it was a bit of a slow burn, and then um, about about a year and a half in, I picked up the River Cafe Blue Book in a bookshop, and I thought, this is just something else. Oh, i got to work there. Within 10 days, I bought an airline ticket on the plane, went and worked for Rose Gray. And at the time, my wife's um, friends, she was in nursing, their friend said, why is he going to go and work for nothing? You know, they were doctors and that. And he said, and I, they're missing the point that, you know, you learn more and they're doing a stage or you learn more in 10 days if you're a qualified chef than you'd learn for, forever in someone else. So I went over there and it just changed. She changed the way I thought about food. Rose Gray, I had more to do with Rose and Ruth, but, you know, when it came to olive oil, she used to go to Italy every year. Her favourite was Silver Piano, but if she went one year and, and their olive oil wasn't great, she goes somewhere else. She went year after year looking for the best mustard fruits that were under the Rialto Bridge or something in um, in Venice. And when she finally got there, the person had died a few months earlier. So, so she was a true believer. And I was there. Darren Simpson was there at the time. Jamie Oliver was there. Ben O'Donoghue was there. Uh, Theo Randall was there. Like just a melting pot of, of good people that all believed, you know, and you know, you would know yourself, Jamie went on to do essentially what Rose and Ruth yeah. did, but yeah. he, he, he conveyed himself in a, you know, in a very good way. I was working on the standing on the 
pass one day because as you know as a stars you don't really have to be put on a section and and someone went to put some capsicum on a risotto and like rose looked at them from them from another planet like she saw things so black and white if it was gray it was gray if it was green it was green as long as it tasted right if it was artichoke it just looked gray like there's no way she, her mind couldn't even comprehend putting a bit of capsicum and it was funny because we'd started shooting our first book we just started didn't even have a contract we just started to photograph the the book and and and, and do it and at that time we were putting a bit of tomato dice around the sort of mushrooms on toast it became that was a delugo dish so it became a bit iconic for echo and i went back and went man we got we got to get the tomato dice it's got no eat value you know it's, we got to get it off so we re-photographed that one and I, i've probably never used tomato dice unless it was in a sauce viage or something I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So when did you realise you were on a good thing at Echo? Was it after Gourmet Traveller and winning Restaurant of the Year? Then what happened, I came back and we, we'd sort of simplified it a bit, but we hadn't changed that much. So it was things like that. But it, then there was Gourmet Traveller. Um, they used to bring a chef out. Now, that year it was Rick Stein. Like if it had been Robert Carrier or someone else, maybe it wouldn't have been us. So he went round mm. to two restaurants in every state. There was uh, About Face in Brisbane. And then that year there was um, Tetsua in Sydney. There was... Um, and um, uh, there was Neil Perry, there was Rockpool, and I was sort of thinking, oh, I don't ever, pers- you know, think I'm in this. I didn't at the time. I didn't think I'm not in the same sort of league as these guys. So we got the invitation to go to Gourmet Trail. It was, it was in the park in Hyde Park there. And I thought, I'm not, oh, it's not even worth going. I'm just going to be making up. Rick Stein came in and and had dinner one night with um, Sarah, who ended up to be his wife. And, um, and they came into Echo, but, you know, of course they leave and said it was all very nice and you, you just don't know. So we get the invitation, obviously, to the dinner, and I just thought, am I really going to go to Sydney just to make up the numbers? You know, Brisbane's never going to win the bloody thing, you know. And um, I go down there and cut a long story short, he, he talked about each restaurant he went to. So he went to Tasmania, he ate these two restaurants, he went to Sydney, and he just hadn't, he, he went to Brisbane, he ate, a, you know, and then he, he went on to some other state, and I thought, holy shit, I know I'm not going to win it, but you can't tell me I'm not worth a mention if all these other ones are getting a mention. And then he said, oh, then we went to this restaurant that was just comfortable in its own skin and I had this liver with mashed potato and some, you know, some pancetta or bacon or something. And I thought, well, that could be anyone. And he said, and then I, um, he said the waiter was really good. He talked about the, the Madfish Bay wine where the, where the fish gets stuck in West Australia in the, in the rocks and they can't. And, and he said the waiter was really good. It was just this whole experience. It was, and then he said, it was just like rock and roll. It was just, I get this. And Everyone cared about what they were doing. And then he said, then we had this dish of Morton Bay bug risotto. I thought, holy shit, that's me. And then I guess the rest is, you know, I've been living it. And then we've been living on that for many years. But, yeah. So how long, how long now is it? So 95? 20, yeah, 25 years. We were 22 at the old venue and then just couldn't agree terms with the landlord, which you'll appreciate was- because, the, because the building changed after 22 years. With us. I got on with the heritage architect, Rob Riddell, still get on with him. He was a fantastic guy. He gave me my break. He's one of those guys I could walk past in the hallway and say, you know, Rob, you know, something's broken. Yeah, can we get halves in it? He was just a 
a great guy. And then they changed hands. We couldn't agree terms. So then Johnny James, who, who owns a lot of property in Brisbane, and he's you know, in James Street, ironically, his surname is James. But then, then he's, he said, um, I've got this spot in Newstead. Do you want to come here? And our lease was just at the end. So we came here and you know, the, we've been happy here. Sometimes, you know, like as much as we maintained, I think I'm the one of the very best at maintaining fridges and, you know, Mary thinks I'm over the top. But I can't stand, I've gone and done. It's an essential skill. Yeah, but I've gone and like you've gone to done guest chef stuff and people are hiding, you know, containers because there's not enough in the kitchen. You've got one spoon. I don't run a kitchen like that. All my equipment works. It's all repaired. If I want to pick up a Thermomix, I want to know it works. You know, because we've been so long at Echo, we maintained everything, but fridges were at 25 years old. Exhaust hoods were 25 years old. Yes, maintained, maybe a new motor, but so it was nice to start afresh. Did, it's a big leap of faith to change, change locations. Did you did you have a moment where you just thought mm, this might not be a good idea? It was, but we, you know, it's a lot. I'm not going to get into that. But it was a story where we were sort of. I thought we were paying fair rent, and then we sort of got squeezed and squeezed. And in the end, we got up to a massive number. And he said, "I want 1,500 more." And I thought, you know, everyone has their price. Everyone has their price, and that's that's that. I've got it. You know, I might have spent. Um, 1500 at Noma one, so I'm not going to argue over that on a yearly rent. So I just had, I knew I had to go, I knew I couldn't. And we thought, how much is it going to affect you? Of course, some people will say, oh, how many restaurants have changed venues and been successful? But it was the right thing to do. It gave, it gives you a new spring in your step when you walk through. I wasn't sick of it. It was funny though, like I, when I locked the front door at Old Echo, when I locked the front door for the final time, I just thought she has been a great vehicle for me. I'm moving on. And I'm not sort of that sort of person. I bloody live in the past a lot. So it was funny for me to lock the door and go, you know what? That has been the most fantastic experience, but time has come and I'm going to move. So, and Mary, my current, my partner, she's Irish. She's taught to me, you know, like, you know, you can change, you can't change yesterday. You certainly can change tomorrow. So I kind of live a bit more in the present these days, you know. So hopefully now you don't have a, a landlord that's essentially your business partner. So the rent's not so not so high because that's what happens, right? They're making more money than you are. <laughs> exactly. Well, we did a, you know, a, a turnover rent, which some that's going to have to come to that. And yeah. it was his idea that we do that. And the first year we paid, you know, way more probably than we did our last year at Echo. But the second year with COVID and that, we were totally protected. Okay. So I think landlords have to take a, a bit of a view that there's going to be good years and bad years, and you can't just squeeze these people because most of the restaurateurs are bloody hard workers and they're not trying to diddle a landlord; they're just trying to make a living. You know? Yeah. What are, What are your thoughts? I mean, being a you know, I hate to say because it, it makes you. It, I was going to say stalwart, but it's um, I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean somebody that's been in the industry for so long and seen so many changes and been integral in those in part of the, many of those changes. How do you see the the industry moving forward from? I, if I just go back to that, Gary, I don't mind calling me that because the other day, <laughs> the other day, Haley, this little Korean girl who's, who's beautiful, works for us. I was showing her a cookbook, and she said, "When did you do that?" And I and and I said, "97." She said, "That was before I was born." <laughs> so that kind of brings you back to um, a reality. reality. But yeah. look, where do, where do I see it's going? The one thing that disappoints me is that the entry level was so high now you know, $500 million, to, is that the young chefs like me, it's hard for them without a backer, and backer brings its problems. It's hard for them to get a crack, and I wish there was more of that, that they could they could get their foot on the peg. But even, you know, council regulations, everything's so expensive these days. That's one disappointment. I guess 
um, a highlight is that I think that there's lots of fertile mines in this country. And, you know, in Brisbane, we've got Ben, who's got Agnes, and you've got, you know, the guys that do Same Same. And there's, there's so much sort of – when I see someone who's as good as me or is better than me, I can just cop that and think that good luck to them. And I just want to see them do well. And so over the years, you'll see people that don't want to employ um, – they don't want to employ someone that that might threaten them, and I and I just think, like at the moment, we've got Anton, our, our head chef, a French guy. It's so gifted, and he just he makes me look good. So, like, how could I how could I <laughs> knock that? And if I can just give you one more story, when we first got Echo, and we um we came back and we'd learned how to make gnocchi and stuff, and we did this gnocchi with Gorgonzola. Been on, still on today. It was on our takeaway menu during COVID. It was on day one at Echo, and I wrote it in my first book. It's the Great Gorgonzola Theory. Is we did the gnocchi. And someone came in, um, a lady came in and said, best gnocchi I've ever eaten. And PJ, my chef from Harvey's, and James, he was, and, but she said the gorgonzola was too strong. So <laughs> I'm going to give you the short version. It's really gnocchi, gorgonzola, spinach. We just fold it through, reduce the sauce and done. And she said, but it was too strong. So I do the typical knee-jerk reaction. I'm, and I'm so happy I learned this in the first six months of Echo. I went back into the kitchen. You know, PJ, you know that gorgonzola we're putting in the knock? It's too strong. A customer said it's too strong. So we take some of it out. About two weeks later, Mitch Thompson, another local restaurant, he comes in and he went, you know what, Phil? One of the best knockers I've ever had. <laughs> he said, I just couldn't taste the gorgonzola. I knew that was And coming. from that day on, I always thought, you, you can't go left when they say go left. You can't go right. But you you have to, you can listen to their opinion, but. The knee-jerk reaction of God, let's change the whole thing because someone said something, is perhaps not the way to go. You know, I got I got very used to it at some stage, especially when I started MasterChef and still had restaurants. Was that people come in and they just want to tell you what's wrong or what they think? Experts everywhere, and it really started to grate me until I just changed my thinking. And I think it somebody told me you've you've got to do the opposite to what they think. And uh, I'd go to a table and I'd go, how how was how did you – I try and be specific, you know, rather than how was the meal. I go, how did you find the lemon in the tortellini? And they go, oh, and now you mentioned it. It's really strong, you know, like actually I find that too strong. And I go, well, I love it, and just walk away. <laughs> because in the end, I'd go, oh, maybe it is. You know, like some lady said to me, oh, the prawns were really prawny. I go, what kind of comments that? You know, you just go, well, yeah, because they're fresh and the great prawns are beautifully sourced and it, but you would have done cooking demonstrations <laughs> like me, Gary, like many. And, and what happens at the most amazing, you'll be there and you'll just put a bit of salt in and think it needs a bit of acid. So you go for a squeeze of lemon and people go, how much was that? And you go, I yeah. don't know. It was a reflex action <laughs> to trust your own palate, yeah. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. Also, I, we have a sort of a bit of a rule of like if in one night, if someone said they didn't like such and such, unless it was like three people, I wouldn't even take it to the chef because it's an individual opinion but yes if you get three or five complaints on one dish yep we need to um we need to look there's at something this. wrong with the, the thing if you were to give uh, you know it's rare i think and to find restaurateurs i mean there's there's a hand there's hands full of them or a handful of them that have been in the business as long as you are and still running successful businesses what's the what's the secret i know we've talked about some of those things but if you were to give advice for i don't know a young chef that's kind of on the brink of thinking about making the leap you know where what would you say Number one, I don't think you can fall out of – if you fall out of love with food and the passion. So, like, I, you know, I, I, a lot of chefs will say, I'm going to have a break, I'm going to go and be a rep or whatever. <laughs> and, I, and I don't have anything against that. But I'm just saying once you kind of make that break, um, it's sort of probably hard to be serious again. So if you if you love what you do and you continue to do it, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. 
And I'm not sick of food. So when I see Anton and the young kids and when I see them putting up food, I think that looks I'm, – look, I'm a bit sick of pin-boning salmon and boning chicken, but if it comes to the execution, the final execution when food is plated and it's seasoned, I'm just so not over that. <laughs> I just love it. So you, number one, you've, I guess you've got to hold the passion. If you think you've had enough and you're going to do it for another five years and you're going to get out and you're going to be a rep for Bidvest or something, well, I guess that's the wrong – thinking but we're back to you've got to believe in yourself you just have to have your own vision you have to say you can't look you see these coffee shops pop up and they're all serving the same stuff so there's no point of difference so you must have you must have a point of difference but you can't go looking for a point of difference if that makes sense you can't suddenly become something you're not uh, the young chefs that we employ that they, they, they would love to be you know moving on because you've got to remember in a restaurant someone's going to over a month they might see the same dish hundreds or thousands of times, but um, I think classics, like when I go back to the knocking gorgonzola, like I, when I see that dish, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but when I see that dish, it looks as fresh to me as day one at 95 as it does now. And so, like, there is some things that can trans, transcend time. Other times you look at it and go, did I really do the bloody apricot in the chicken? <laughs> you know, the, you do you do shudder, but there's a lot that you think, no, that. That dish, maybe it's it's not plated in you know like we would these days, but it's got good bones. And um, we went through a stage, Gary, where you know restaurant owners, the chef would leave, and the and the second chef would leave, the sous chef would leave, and next minute some guy has been in the industry a couple of years, he's the head chef. So they come and they they come to me with their resume. He went, you know, I was a head chef, and I said, how long have you been cooking? They go, oh, two years, but I got kind of promoted, and I'm thinking, you're kidding me, you know. And I think it. That's not always their fault. It's that they've been given an opportunity of running a little cafe and they get pushed into, well, they're not a sous chef and they're not a chef. My advice is actually work for the right people. Just when when someone brings a CV to me and I don't care what quali- – I do believe in, in qualification because that shows your food hygiene. I do in a formal education and mm-hmm. in, in hygiene and health and safety and all that, that's a big part. But when someone comes to me and they can have all the accolades or the – the, the colleges they've been to, if I see they've worked for a number of chefs that I recognise, they don't have to be in Gordon Ramsay, they just have to be good places and if they've made a succession of, you know, good changes, even if there's the odd one in there that I don't really rate, that's how I employ people. Work for the right people and you'll always, you'll be safe, you know. Yeah. You know what, actually, seeing you talk just then versus how you talked about the Gorgonzola, there's a certain smile and a twinkle in your eye that gives it away that really that was the that was the best answer that what you that the fact that you still love it that it still makes you smile and still gives you that little you know I don't know whether it makes the hair stand on, on the back of your head and I that that's the thing that I love I think that if people you know when they've, they've worked hard in their career can still love it like that I think that's the inspiration but I look I'm the same as you Gary your story with the money like I I used to lock up every night and then suddenly you think, okay, I'm not going to lock up as much. I'm going to go a little bit earlier. But I honestly, and I, I think I've never suffered from, if I see someone better than me, what's interesting for a chef, you go to a linear or some or some place that they're doing food where I don't know how they got from A to B. You know, they, they produce a balloon <laughs> with a gas in it that you can eat. And I like, and I find that interesting. I don't want to do that food, but I think when a chef works in a spear I remember being once at a linear in Chicago and one dish came out and it was uh, like a um, 
a, a disc of sort of raspberry coolie, which they must have dehydrated. They'd weave it into a Chinese fan and they said, oh, this is a, the chef's um, homage to kinetics. And it, it flashed back and forwards like a, like a Chinese sort of fan. And I thought, if this thing ever stops, I'm going to bloody eat it. And, um, and I was just thinking, this is, Alinea is not that small. It's 120 people. Imagine if, you, if we ruined the, the Chinese um, raspberry fan. What do we do? You know, like these guys are serious. Like if I burn a tray of a sweet potato, I can go and cook another sweet potato. So I admire people that, that have that skill. Not, I don't always want to do that. But I think um, what's exciting for me is, is seeing good talent. Because I remember years ago, someone's going to come along and knock you off. I said, that's great. You know, like there's... Nothing gives me greater pleasure when I see a young chef put a dish up and it's a familiar dish that we've all seen a hundred times before, but they just do a little something that changes, takes it in a different direction that I never would have thought of. And that seems to freshen it up and make it all new again. I like those ideas. And it, and it makes it that for me, I look at those young people and go, that's, that's what the industry needs. That's what it's all about. It's young blood. It's enthusiastic. It's thinking about things that I would never think of. Um, and with my experiences, would never do. That's dead true. The other thing is never run a closed shop. If someone comes to you with an, an idea, so, so you know, no matter how big, no small, don't poo-hoo it. If you don't like it, don't do it, but don't make them, don't belittle them. A guy came to us, beginning of Echo, and said, you know what, I used to work on the boats, these cruise boats, uh, these big luxury boats. And he said, we used to keep all our sources in thermoses. We preheat the thermos. After two hours, you almost burn your finger on the source he said we don't get any reduction in the source there's no skin on the source we don't lose it and 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 he and he was he was an apprentice and he said i well, not he must be out of his apprenticeship but he said and we've used a thermos and so many people do ever since but like imagine if you said no don't tell me what to do i'm going to use my little pot and ladle i've been doing that forever i'm a, you know you just got to be a bit open, open. to people's um My, mind you i have to tell you george matt and i ate at linear a few years ago but we also ate at royster which was his like uh kind of American brasserie around the corner. And can I tell you, their crispy fried chicken with whiskey butter um, eclipsed anything of the, the the complication and craziness that we had in that restaurant. I could take it or leave it, never have to eat there again. But that deep fried chicken with the whiskey butter, Jesus. That and that's, was, that's the key, isn't it? If you go to a great proper. restaurant, and it, <laughs> and it is a great restaurant, even today, I could probably, out of, say, the 11 courses, I could probably recite five or six. And that's 15 years. I could, it's in my mind of what they were. You can actually remember them. But I remember leaving a linear. That's sort of my, I love that one. But anyway, in my wife, my Mary, my current partner, she doesn't, um, she went with me and said, I don't get it quite as much as you. But I remember when I, when I first left it, I text someone and said, if I get hit by a bloody yellow cab now, food-wise on this world, I'm done. And it's, it's a big call, but it was just such a remarkable meal that I just thought, am I going to see better? And of course, you, you are, you know. Are they going to design a better car, a better, of course, if things move on. But at that time, I thought, it's as good as I've seen. Yeah, time and place. Well, thank you, Philip Johnson. Brilliant stuff. Thank you. Now for my tips and tricks. Philip talked about gnocchi gorgonzola, which he made famous at his restaurant. But at home, it seems like a big ask, but it's not that hard. But this is a little different. It's a semolina gnocchi, which I find much easier to make, and it's much lighter. All you need is 550 mils of milk. You bring that to the boil, and you rein in 100 grams of fine semolina. And it's a bit like polenta. It'll come together almost in a porridge-like way. You cook it for two to three minutes, take it off the heat, you add one egg yolk, beat it in, acts as a kind of stabilizer and a thickener, and then you put in about 50 to 60 grams of parmesan, give it lots of flavor, salt, pepper, 
spread it out on a tray, let it set, and then you can cut it out. And here's where it gets tasty. You can brush it with butter, put it in a little dish and just bake it, grate cheese over the top. It goes light and fluffy and golden and granulated. Or you can add a little gorgonzola, you can add a little bit of pancreatato, which are like toasted breadcrumbs, or you can make a little sugo like a tomato sauce. It's just a delicious way to eat something different that's Italian and that's wonderful. A Plate to Call Home is produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.